0: I don't know how many songs uh, our worship team has sung uh, since the time I came, uh, three years and eight months ago. I'm pretty sure it's in the triple digits, so easily a hundred songs. As you're turning to Matthew chapter 9, I say that for this reason. I literally don't know. I can't think of any other song than the one that was just sung that would fit as perfectly into today's text as that one right there. Uh, So praise the Lord, a lot of truth in that, and I hope that's your heart. Uh, I realize uh, this morning that uh, we took some time in prayer, and a little longer than normal, but guys, please do not uh, belittle uh, prayer and like think, oh, let's get through that and get to the good stuff. Uh, Prayer is the good stuff. It is the necessary stuff. So Matthew chapter 9, would you join me as we continue uh, in our study of the book of Matthew. And today it gets a little personal to Matthew because the author of our book, today is his calling, as we'll find out in verse nine and then the, the outflow of his calling um, in verses 10 through 13. So if you would join me. Uh, we're pretty much going to stay in this text today. We will look very briefly over at two verses where Matthew, or I'm sorry Luke gives an account of this just because one piece of information he provides. But other than that, we're in right here. So if you have your Bible open uh, to Matthew chapter 9, we'll begin in verse 9, then you're set uh, for the better part of this message today. And just keep it open and keep referring back to it, verse 9. Here we go. As Jesus passed on from there, and so there means that we're looking back, we're continuing last week's passage where Jesus had come back to his headquarters in a city called Capernaum on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee, up in Galilee. And so he has been operating. The last scene seems to have been in Simon Peter and Andrew's house, same place where he had healed uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law of a fever and where many others uh, possessed of devils and sicknesses back in chapter 8. They were brought. Jesus did a lot of healing there. And apparently, the last passage was, again, in that same house where a paralytic man was brought to him and Jesus was teaching and preaching the word of God. Jesus heals a paralytic man of his paralysis and forgives him of his sins. That was the main point, the forgiveness of his sins. But now, this says, verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, we're not going to read Mark's account, but Mark tells us that it's down by the seaside. And so, some historians have put, A lot together, more than I will take time to uh, share with you about what kind of tax collector Matthew may have been, but follow the story as Matthew is writing about his own conversion, his own calling. Again, verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, from Simon Peter's house, again, headed toward the sea, according to Mark, he saw a man. So there's Matthew writing and just saying, by the way, that man was me. But he doesn't give his name, but he says, and he saw a man called Matthew, and he's also called Levi. Levi, Matthew, he has two names that are interchangeable. He uses his name Matthew. So Jesus saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth down by the Sea of Galilee. So that kind of gives us a hint as to what kind of tax collector. So he's there sitting at the tax booth because he is a tax collector. He's got his pen. He has his ledger. He's receiving, marking off, no doubt. Maybe rebuking, collecting, all of that. And the Bible says, he, Jesus, says to him, Matthew, follow me. Follow me. Guys, that is its own message. I am not going to make that the whole message. It's its own message. Jesus' message to his disciples, and certainly for these that were going to become apostles, is Follow me. He comes up to a man sitting, taking taxes. I don't know how that worked. If Jesus was in line or if Jesus caught a little spot, a little break in the line, goes up to him and says, follow me. And he rose and followed him. That's how it happened. Uh, Luke tells us, as we'll see in a little bit, he left everything. Everything's left behind. He literally left that business, and he began following Christ. So there's a gap of time between verse 9 and verse 10 because and when, I don't think it's a large gap. A little bit of time because it would take time to organize. There's a change of life that's taken place. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house. So I'm going to go ahead and propose and we'll show this in a moment. We're not back at Simon Peter's house. As Jesus reclined at table, that, that's how they ate at that time. You're going to have a nice big meal, they would recline. It's kind of like the upper room that we'll see Later, and as we see so much of in the book of John, as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many. Notice this is a large house, many tax collectors and sinners. So, Jesus calls a tax collector. Next thing you know, we're at a scene where Jesus is reclining at table in someone's house. We'll know who that is in a minute. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now that sounds odd. Jesus is eating a meal with his disciples. Who's eating the meal with tax collectors and these people that are just generically called sinners? Well, verse 11, here they are again. We're kind of getting the picture that they follow Jesus around wherever he goes. Verse 11, and when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, not to Jesus directly, Later, they will talk to Christ. Apparently, they're a little afraid to talk to Christ just yet because he's a very powerful teacher. When the Pharisees saw this, they see these tax collectors and sinners going in that. What are they doing? And they're having a meal. So they catch some of his disciples outside the house, no doubt. And they ask this question. What does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? What's up with that? What's your teacher doing? Do you know what your do you know what that means? Do you know who you're following? Verse 12. But when he heard it, he said, and maybe there's some movement over to have this conversation. When he heard it, he said, here's the answer to their question. Why does he do it? Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. You want to know why I'm meeting with him? Those who are well, whole, healthy, they have no need of a physician but those who are sick let me interject right at the beginning so that we understand jesus is not saying that certain people are well whole and healthy spiritually and others are not he's obviously talking about some know they are not well know that they are sick and others don't know it and so how come you're eating with them well those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick, referring to those in the house. And then Jesus tells the Pharisees, go and learn. In other words, these guys who think they know what the Scripture says, he says, you need to go back and revisit it and pull aside and really, really think about this portion of Scripture. And he quotes out of Hosea, one of the prophets, chapter 6, verse 6. Jesus tells the Pharisees in answer to their question, you want to know if I'm eating with them? Here's what you need to do. Go and learn what this means. Quote. Now he quotes Hosea. I, God says, I desire mercy. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You guys need to go think about what God was saying when He says He desires mercy and not just sacrifice. And then to round it all out in answer to their question, you want to know why I'm eating with them? For I came not to call the righteous. Call all righteous. Gather around. He says, I did not come to call the... Do you think I came here? Do you... If you knew who I was and where I came from and how far down I came to get here and what I'm going to go through, do you think I really came to call the righteous? I came. You want to know why I'm meeting with him? I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came to call sinners, and that's why I'm meeting with them. Would you notice three things with me today? Uh, your handout, this is a very, and if you're like a veteran Christian, I'm going to go and tell you this is the simplest sermon that we've preached in quite some time. But simple sermons are awesome because the goal here is not to try to make something fancy. The goal is to find out what is the main thing Jesus is trying to tell us. And so we want to notice three things this morning. First of all, starting in verse number nine. Would you notice with me Matthew the tax collector, or really we could have said the calling of Matthew, the tax collector. But again, as a shortened version of that, let's talk about Matthew, the tax collector. One of the things I noticed, if we look again, you got your Bible there, look at verse 9 again. As Jesus passed on from there, Simon Peter and Andrew's house, he goes down by the Sea of Galilee, and verse 9 says, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. One of the things that I noticed when I read that, that was... That Matthew, the author of this whole, epi- this whole gospel, is writing a biography. He is not writing an autobiography. If he was writing an autobiography, he would say, I was sitting at the tax booth down by the Sea of Galilee, and lo and behold, Jesus came. But he doesn't do that. It's from, he stays on point. He stays in his style. It is a biography. Forget who I am. It was me, by the way. I'm sitting there. But Jesus comes, and there's this man. It was me. There's this man sitting at the tax booth. And Jesus says, follow me, and he follows him. Next thing you know, there's this scene in this house. And so he gives this whole perspective. This is, the Holy Spirit is inspiring Matthew of what to write. But this is like etched in his mind the day that he was called to follow Christ. This is his conversion moment, if you will. I remember mine. I hope you can remember yours When did you meet the Lord Jesus Christ? When did Christ, in essence, call you to follow me? The Bible says that Matthew was sitting at a tax booth. And so here's what I want to do. Because this requires some historical background, which I wouldn't know otherwise, I'm going to give you guys a whole series of quotations right at the beginning. I think I quote four people four times in this message. Three are coming back to back to back. You ready? I want to begin with William Barclay. He writes the following because we need to get... This is important. So what's the deal with tax collectors? It sounds like they're not very good company to keep to some people. And then we know that tax collectors are this group. Many of them are gathered together at this meal, and that causes some disruption. What's the problem with tax collectors? Barclay writes the following. He says tax gatherers were universally hated. Tax gatherers universally hated and you may wonder why and when you say well I don't need to wonder why it's like the IRS <laughs> I don't know that a lot of people like the IRS but guys it, this is not like us you say well I may have a problem with the IRS no this is individual people individual tax uh, gatherers tax uh, collectors how did they become that what the way you became a tax collector is you would buy that position so you would pay, and if you were allowed to be nominated or given that position, then you could become extremely wealthy because of this position. But you knew going in, you're going to be hated. Why? Barclay continues. So why are they hated universally? He says they had. En- this is key, and we'll give you a few reasons. He writes they had entered the service of their country's conquerors. So in other words, the Roman Empire had conquered Palestine and Israel, and they were ruling and reigning over them. And so ultimately, if you're collecting money, you're serving the hated Romans, and you're supposed to be one of us. So why would a Jew go into service collecting money from other Jews that's ultimately going to go to the hated Roman Empire? And so that's one of the reasons they were hated. But it goes further. They had entered the service of their country's conquerors, and they, here it is, here's why they're hated. They're hated. They amassed their fortunes, these tax collectors, at the expense of their country's misfortunes. So they're getting wealthy while the rest of the country is causing their wealth. I cannot take time, and I don't remember it all, but I cannot take time to really divulge all that I read this week about tax collectors. It would become its own message. But there were several types of taxes, just like we have several types of taxes uh, if you were a farmer and you grew grain, 10% tax on what you brought in that year. If you grew produce, fruits and vegetables, other types of things, 20% tax on that. If you had an income, 1% annual tax. you like, hey, 1%. But remember, 10% on your grain, 20% on your produce. But it doesn't, doesn't stop there. And there would be a, a tax collector that would do that, and that would be fed back to the Roman Empire. But... The real reason people hated these folks is not only would they send back the Roman portion to the Romans, but the Romans allowed them, because you bought that position, it's understood you're going to do it, you get a fee, and obviously the taxpayer needs to make a living, and so he can pad those numbers going to Rome. But these guys, much more than padded those numbers, they like really inflated them and overcharged people, and people wouldn't know what's the going rate on things. And so all they know is some of it goes there, and that guy gets something, and all these tax collectors have the biggest houses around. And so this is a real beneficial living for them. And they're like fleecing the common person. Matthew appears to be the kind of tax collector, and we see this in our own country. If you stay at a hotel, you're going to pay a tax. You go to the restaurant, you're going to pay a tax. Go to the store, you're going to pay a tax. Go get some gas at the gas station. You're paying a tax on that. So it's not just like your one-time income tax. We pay it over and over. If you have a boat, you pay a tax. If you buy a car, you pay a tax. If you buy a house, these are the kinds of things that Matthew is set up around the Sea of Galilee He's apparently taxing axles on carts. He's taxing boats. He's taxing donkeys. He's taxing the amount of bags on donkeys, how much fish is brought in, how much uh, produce and product is going from Egypt up to Damascus, and he's hitting it coming and going. It's running through his hands, and he's a wealthy man. So let's go back to Barclay's quote and move on to the next one. So putting it together, they're universally hated. They entered the service of their country's conquerors, They amassed their fortunes at the expense of their country's misfortunes. And then write this down. They were notoriously dishonest. Just explain that. Like, they didn't just tax the amount that was required. They went way beyond. Barclay continues. He says, not only did they fleece their own countrymen, but they also did their best to swindle the government, and they made a flourishing income. So here's kind of completing of it. They made a flourishing in income by taking bribes from rich people who were seeking to avoid taxes. So I'm gonna pull a random number. You have a business and you owe the Roman government, the government as a whole, Herod the king who is under the Roman government. You, your business owes $100,000, just using a hypothetical. You owe $100,000 in taxes, but if you can make a little deal with Matthew, the publican, the tax collector, he can maybe make the books look like you owe sixty-five thousand to the Roman government. He sends that off. Give him fifteen, twenty thousand to him as a little kick bonus that he's glad to take, and you're going to save fifteen or twenty thousand dollars in the deal. Everybody knows that the wealthy were doing this. So R.C. Sproul adds the following. He says, he, "And you got to get. I'm going to give you three sentences, each one." You need to develop in your mind. I cannot take the time. Sproul writes that, quote, even though they had wealth, their social status was at the bottom of the barrel. How many times in society do you see the wealthiest people literally are at the bottom of the social status, at the very bottom of the barrel? He continues, talking of tax collectors, they were so despised they were not permitted to participate in the synagogue. That tells me they were more despised than the Romans themselves. Roman centurion soldiers could come and sit at the back of the synagogue. Here comes a tax collector, and if they know who you are, no. no. You, get on, you get on. You know you're not allowed. out. Get out. That's how much despised they were. And then Sproul finishes by writing, they were regarded as so disreputable. Remember dishonest. They're so disreputable that they were not permitted to give testimony in the law courts. So guys, if you had an incident that you needed to take to court and your prize eyewitness who actually saw the thing happen and you bring him in, if he's a tax collector, all the opposing lawyer has to do is say, isn't it true that he's a tax collector? Well, yes. <laughs> well, we know he's a liar. He can't, he can't give a testimony. Get him, but he's telling the truth this time. No, get him out. He cannot testify on your behalf. And so to our point in verse 9, R.T. France writes the following. For Jesus, to call such a man, to follow him was a daring breach of etiquette. Guys, do you understand? We need to feel this. Of all the people that Jesus could have called to follow him, he calls a tax collector. This is a major breach of etiquette. Later on, France completes his quote by saying, fishermen who we think were probably over half of the apostles. Seven, maybe eight of them would have been fishermen. He writes that fishermen may not have been high on the social scale, but at least they were not automatically, morally, and religiously suspect. Matthew was. Fishermen, they may not be the highest and the greatest. (laughs) This guy's automatic. Why would you even have him? He is morally and religiously suspect. We know that because... We know he's a liar. But guys, here's the key. Jesus changes lives. Jesus changes stories. There are folks listening to me right now, whenever now is, whether it's live on a Sunday morning or later on, and they're going to say, that is me If you knew the stories that changed from before and after Christ of the people that are just listening to this message right now, God took their life and our lives and like this is what it was like before and this is what it's like afterward and it is night and day and that's what we find here with Matthew. Yes, he was a tax collector. Yes, he would be labeled with the sinners and yes, he's disreputable and yes, he's hated but then he's a follower of Christ. He calls him to follow me On your handout, you have like five things, and I'm going to offer this. What is this follow-me call that Jesus gives to Matthew? Literally, I want to begin by saying the call of of Jesus on the life of Matthew to be his disciples literally means to follow him physically because he's going to get up. It means, let me put it together, Follow me, like literally come and go where I go. And here's, I think, what that the main point you are now going to live your life how I live my life. You're not going to live the old life. You're leaving all of that behind. You're going to now follow me. You're going to live like me. Secondly, what's this call on Matthew's life? It is to assist in ministry. It may be rowing a boat. It may be giving food to 5,000 and 4,000 males and not counting all the women and children that were at the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. It may be going out in crowd control. It may be corralling and giving instructions. We know that ultimately these guys are going to be sent out two by two and they're going to be given a message from the Lord Jesus Christ and they're going to be given power to cast out devils and to heal people themselves. And so they're going to assist in ministry. What's this calling? Follow me physically, live like I live, assist in ministry and the third thought is you're going to become a learner of my message I'm going to be teaching and preaching and your calling is to follow me and constantly be learning what I'm teaching number four take what I'm teaching and put it into your life implement my teaching into your life and then to round it all out what's Matthew's assignment teach that to other people Guys, I want to propose to you that what we just described, that is going to be Matthew's life, that is the same call that is on our life. If you're a Christian and you're watching this, can I encourage you? The call of Jesus on your life is not to escape hell. It's not just to go to heaven. The call is to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, like live how he lived, assist in ministry. Are you assisting in ministry? You say, "Well, I'm a Christian." Oh, I know I'm a Christian. I've escaped hell. I'm on my way to heaven. Okay. Are you living life like Christ? Are you assisting in ministry? Do you make it a point? I want to learn the teachings of Christ. I want to implement those into my life. And then the big one. Are you teaching and training someone else after you? I'm going to call that discipleship. That is discipleship in a nutshell. And so Matthew follows the Lord Jesus. Obviously, he takes a huge pay cut. I mean, a huge pay cut. He is now living by faith. But we'll go further than that. Not only is he living by faith, Matthew now has a whole new identity. He has a brand new identity. Things are changing. So before this, Matthew's identity is I mean, he can't help it. Anytime someone asks him, Who are you? Oh, I'm Matthew. I'm a tax collector. He would have a negative identity, but he willingly takes it because it comes with a lot of money, and he has a big house, and he has nice things. But he's at the bottom of the social status, but that's okay. He'll take the money. Now he has a brand-new identity. He is no longer has this negative identity as a, as a tax collector. Now he not, his true identity is, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I am his. He is my new identity. Guys, can I say this? I'm In just a moment, Chase, a quick rabbit. So so many times, we get our identity in what we do. And I don't have anyone in mind. I literally, I'm telling you, I don't have anyone in mind. But I will guarantee you, all around America and around the world, as we're living under these stay-at-home orders, I'll promise you there are people that are suffering psychologically and they don't even know why. They're not scared of getting a virus. But they've maybe been furloughed or reduced hours and more time at home, their whole life has changed. They were in this rhythm, and they had a job, and and unfortunately, they're a Christian who has been identifying themselves by their job, and now they're laid off, or they're just kind of spinning their wheels, they feel like at home, doing nothing, and it can kind of play on the mind, and all of a sudden, they don't know why. There's this emptiness, and, and they're just struggling psychologically. It may be that they have wrongly, as a Christian, been putting their identity, their very purpose for living, behind my job. Christians, if you're a Christian, let me say it this way. First and foremost, we put those words together. First and foremost, your identity is that you are a child of God. That's your identity. You may be a child of God furloughed. You may be a child of God lost their job, a child of God who's laid off for a period of time, whatever it may be, reduced hours. That is your identity. Now, you may pay the bills as a plumber, an electrician, a healthcare professional, a financial professional, a mechanic, a plant worker, someone who owns a business. You may be a mother, a housewife. You, you may say my main role right now in life is I am a grandparent. That is fine. That, that's a role that you fill. Those are things that you do, but we are not defined by what we do. We are defined as I am defined by Christ. I am the, child, the adopted child of God. That's your identity and that does not fluctuate by how many hours you work in the course of a week. Number two, did you notice with me this morning, and we'll read verse 10, but then we'll go over to to Luke in a moment. Notice not just Matthew the tax collector, but Matthew the host. Notice Matthew the host. So verse number 10 says the following, Jesus has called a tax collector to follow him, verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, what does this mean? This Simon Peter's house again. No, um, you don't need to turn there unless you just want to. I'm going to read Luke chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. And this is Luke's version of this same story. He calls him Levi. And so verse 28, and leaving everything. So Jesus says to Matthew or Levi, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Now watch verse 29. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company. So we're told over in Matthew, there were many tax collectors. There was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table within. He made him a great feast in his house. I'm back in Matthew now. I'm looking at verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, you know what that means? If you tell me, hey, I'll see you over at the house at 1 o'clock. You know what that means? That means your house. So Matthew's writing this. and He says, so Jesus was reclining at table at my house. And behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Matthew, the host. Matthew's going to affect a lot of lives. He's been affecting our life for the last year and four months as we're going through this, epi- this gospel that he's written. He's affecting a lot of lives, but did you notice, now catch what I'm about to say, where does Matthew start? Matthew's first order of business, he's called to follow Christ. He's been converted. He's a believer in the Lord Jesus. His first order, I've left the old life behind, but I have this big house, and I'm going to use it as a tool. What does he do? He invites his associates, and he invites his friends to come to a dinner because he's going to leverage existing relationships so that he can introduce those people to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is leveraging existing relationships. Guys, can I just impress a thought, what if? I'm talking to me, but I'm also talking to you. I'm talking to everybody in this building right now listening here. Anyone who will watch this later. What if, what if before we die, we made a point that I'll not go to heaven having not done my absolute best to share my faith with all the people who are in my normal sphere of influence. those who I'm not talking the person you see every three months, and you see them in passing, and you don't really have an opportunity. What if every person in your normal sphere of operation, you see them at least every month, every week, you say, what if all of us, could you imagine every person watching this, if we all just said, I'm going to make a point, there would be overlap among us. They will hear my faith from my lips before I die. You say, well, Jeff, I don't even know that they would really listen and receive the Lord Jesus. Many will not, but I'm telling you, many will. Matthew made a point. Now, as expected, Matthew's an outcast. So who are his friends? Outcasts. He's an outcast. His friends almost have to be outcasts because you would be defiled if you were his friends. If his friends, so these type people gather together. Who does he invite to this meal to be introduced to the Lord Jesus? Other tax collectors and these group of people who are generically referred to as sinners. Who are these sinners? So these tax gatherers, they're the most hated. They're at the bottom of the social status. They're disreputable. They're known to be dishonest. Okay, we know them. Who are these other people? Guys, this term sinners could be used in one of two ways or both. Obviously, it would mean this group. It's a group of people that just discard the law of Moses. So you have the law of Moses. It's the law of God. They just discard it. It's not actually stated in the text, but can I propose to you and some that I read this week, put the thought into my mind, There are probably men and women in this house. Who's in the house? As the Pharisees are looking, I'll propose to you there are those who are known to have discarded their lifestyle, just discarded the law of God. There's blasphemers. There are drunkards. Maybe some prostitutes. There are thieves, known thieves, and maybe even robbers adding violence to their theft. What kind of people are here? Again, just the worst of the worst are going into the... and Jesus is in there eating with them. And so these are the sinners But it's more than that. This term could also be used as those who discard and do not live by the teachings of the elders of of Israel. So through the centuries, the Jewish spiritual leaders, the elders, would take the law of God. And as if it wasn't specific enough, they would come up with long lists of very specific things. And so now here we are 2,000 years ago, but 1,500 years into this whole Jewish thing. And they've collected hundreds and hundreds of these laws of the elders or these scribal rules. And so they would actually look at someone who, okay, maybe they keep the law of Moses, but they don't keep the scribal rules. Listen, those are man-made rules. They would label them as sinners and those as sinners. And these are the kind of people that are in the house with the Lord Jesus. And then look at verse 11. Because here they come. Verse 11, you see it. And when the Pharisees saw this, what was happening, these tax collectors and sinners, those kinds of people going into the house, they said to his disciples, So why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? If you were with us last week, you saw the scribes in Peter's house and how they responded to something Jesus said. We're starting to get the right idea of what they do. They're just following. Are these guys like everywhere Jesus goes? Pretty much. They're kind of on his heels and they've taken it as their job to follow him and critique everything he does and critique everything he says. They don't like him, and they're trying to find things on him, and boy, now they have found something on him. He is eating. That is a defilement, says who? The the scribal law. He, we know they are sinners and now he's eating with them and fellowshipping with them and apparently he's endorsing their lifestyle so now he is labeled with them and you guys are following him. How dare you follow him? Do you know what your master is doing? How he's leading you? And so they just go around critiquing, condemning the Lord Jesus. They stay on the outside. The text doesn't specifically say but I think it's very strongly implied. Once they see who's going in the house, they stay on the outside of the house and they ask A question, verse 11. Uh, Let me read it again. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, so it's a why question. Why does your... This is not a sincere... This is not how they ask. Hey, man, can I... Come here a second. Hey, man, what's your name? John. Hey, John. You want his father? Yeah. Can I ask you something? Why is he eating with tax collectors? How come he's eating with sinners? Oh, well, he's in there talking to them about salvation and how he's the Savior. Oh... Because we were just wondering, okay, thank. That's not how they asked this. This is a we don't want an answer. It's a rhetorical question. We don't want to answer no. Why is all we need to know is he's doing it? Why are you following him? Notice what they do. If you're taking notes, you'll begin your note here. The Pharisees' whole approach. Now, catch what I'm about to say. Verse 11 reveals that their whole approach to life was. Catch, please listen. Total separation from anybody that was not like them. Watch. Pharisees, they say there were around 6,000 of them in that day. They viewed themselves as holy and godly, and everybody that's not like them, those people are contaminated and contaminating. There's us, 6,000 of us. We're holy and godly, and there's everybody else and their philosophy was literally physical separation. We can't go in that house now because they're in there. We would be defiled if we were to go into that house. There's some of you watching who are kind of like me. And you'll know as soon as I describe this. Whether directly stated or just implied in your past church life. You've been fed in your theology at some point in life a belief system that what I just described, that's the Christian life. You say, what's the Christian life? Some of you are like me. You've had this impressed upon you. Here's the Christian life. You become a Christian, and you start becoming godly and holy, and once you do, the Christian life is about staying away from everybody else that's not like us, like literally, physically stay away from these people. And some of you are like, well, Jeff, that is the Christian life. Is it? Is it really? Because I would dare say that is not the Christian life. That is... So the Pharisees, can I liken them to like monks? When I went to Greece, I was able to see some of these monasteries that were built, I mean, on cliffs. Like these strange rock formations that you would have to have... I mean, there's no way you would get me up there. Because you would have to like climb these rocks. And then build a ladder and drop it back down for other people. Monks... Would, would literally leave their former life and go off and live at these monasteries with just a few other monks. Some of them would take a vow of silence, like maybe for life or for most of the year until a short time of the year. They would spend like eight hours sleeping, eight hours praying, and eight hours working, praying and reading the Bible, and that's how they would break up. No frills in their life. Like, lots of self-denial. Why? Because that's how you become holy. You get away from everyone that is unholy, and we go live just amongst ourselves. That's the attitude of the Pharisees. Can I tell you what's wrong with that? You see the problem already? We're probably going to teach it 50 times before we ever get to chapter 28. That viewpoint, that mindset, that mentality of the Pharisees and even these monks totally neglects The Great Commission. Jesus says for us to go into all the world, to go to sinners, to win them to the Lord Jesus Christ, to get them to be baptized, to go public with their faith, and then teach them to observe all that the Lord has commanded us. This mentality says, hey, I'm thankful for the person that told me about this, but as far as everybody else, the gospel stops here. And that's a totally wrong mentality. Everyone else can just stay in their sins. That's this mentality. Could you imagine... If every Christian was like the monks, or if every Christian had a mentality like the Pharisees, we'd just stay away. We'd cease to exist after about one or two generations of Christians. Thankfully, the people who led me to Christ did not have that mentality. Let's get a bunch of snot-nosed, little ragamuffin, housing kids, and let's get them up on the mountain, and let's send them to a Bible camp, and we'll tell them about Jesus, and some of them will get saved. Well, you don't want to put all that effort. You kids make messes, and there's a lot of trouble, I understand, but we're going to do it. And praise the Lord for those who took the time to get a bunch of sinful little kids together and tell them about Jesus back in 1979. So before we leave the second point, I need to go back to how we've been taught, some of us. I right, hold on, Jeff. What about, you with me? What about what Paul tells the Corinthians? Paul says that we're to come out from among them, come out from among the world, and we are to be separate. What about that? So we seem to have a dilemma, right? So there's this mentality, like physical separation. And some would take what Paul teaches the Corinthians, and they would come up with this idea that we need to all get together and live on holy Christian compounds separate from the world. Maybe they can just kind of bus in, or maybe we'll just have special shipping, all of our stuff, and we'll never leave the compound. And then we'll call it the Christian life. What's Jesus doing here? So we have what Paul says come out from among them and be separate. But we have Jesus in their eating with tax collectors and sinners. And they're known sinners. He's not denying that they're sinners. So who's right? Which one is it? Are we supposed to be separate or are we supposed to go in among them? Let me propose just a few things. You'll not see them on a handout. And going to try to go quickly through them. This is what you can rest assured we can know. Number one. We can know that Jesus... So listen, you say, hey, is Jesus going against what Paul taught? Well, first of all, Jesus wouldn't worry about going against what Paul taught. Paul gets his information from Jesus. Jesus isn't worried. But what about what people might think if you do what Jesus did? Jesus didn't really worry a whole lot about what other people thought. So here's a few things that I'm confident in saying. Number one, we know that Jesus was not just spending time with... This is key... He's not just spending time with sinners in their sin. He's not spending time with sinners in their sin. You say, well, it doesn't really tell us what all is going on in the house. We maybe have some hints. We know what's going on outside the house. We have a few hints, but we don't know specifics. Can I tell you this? Nobody in the house is blaspheming. There's some blasphemers in the house. They're not blaspheming while they're in the house with the Lord Jesus. There may have been some prostitutes in the house, but nobody in the house is being seductive. There may have been some drunks that were there, but no one's getting drunk around the Lord Jesus. There's probably some people that were thieves and robbers, but no one's in there planning their next robbery. Yes, there were tax collectors that had cheated people out of their tax money, but they're not in there bragging about how they had cheated people out of their tax money, and they're not sharing tips about how you ought to try that down in your district. You say, then what do you think is actually happening? I can tell you what's going on in the house. Jesus is directing the conversation toward spiritual things. You say, I don't see that. How do you know that? I know that because, like, literally, literally, guys, every time we see Jesus saying something, every time, what's he doing? He's steering the conversation toward spiritual things. And you can be sure he's not just in the house, in sin, with sinners. The second thing that I know is this, and this is important Jesus is so strong spiritually, that he was influencing them. Notice what's not happening. Jesus is so strong spiritually. He is not being influenced by them. He is influencing them, and that is very key. I am not getting too specific because somebody may say this, and some, some of you right now, you're like I would be if I were listening to me and saying, so what do you think? If Jesus is like literally eating with Sitting down at a meal, that sounds like some fellowship is taking place. Then, then how far can we go? Would it be all right, Brother Jeff? Do you think it's okay if a Christian does this and maybe puts themselves in this position and that one and that one? Okay, I am not going to get specific because some of the things that the Lord would allow some of you to do and some other people may critique and say negative things about you for doing it, you are a strong enough Christian that that would not alter you from your task. Here's the third thing that I know is happening here. Jesus has a reason for being at this meal. He has a purpose for this contact. It is evangelism. It is an evangelistic meal. He's not just hanging out with sinners for for the sake of hanging out with sinners. He's not joining them in their sin. He's the one spiritually strong. He's directing things. He's influencing them. They're not influencing him. And his goal is to save them from their sins. And so, without getting specific, let me just summarize that thought with this. This passage does not encourage any Christian to put themselves in a position that is spiritually tempting beyond what they can bear. So there's some young Christian, and you may say, "Hey, Okay, I'm going to go do this, and next Friday I think I've already heard something's going on, and I'm going go to go. And Okay, can you handle it? All right? This is, not, this is not grounds for any Christian to put themselves in a position that it is too tempting for them to handle. But we don't want to leave it there. This is actually a challenge to us to be like our Lord, to become so strong spiritually, so strong in our faith that we can put ourselves in a position where, so to come out from among the world and be separate doesn't mean like physical distance. It means to be different in how we live, in our purpose of living, in our lifestyle, not in the distance, physical distance between us and them. And so what this is calling us is to become so strong in our faith that we can minister in the world without partaking of the sin of the world. So we're in the world without being of the world. And by doing that, we are still separate from the world. So I close this point before our third one today with a series of questions. Can, is it possible for a Christian, can you be a Christian? I don't mean just be saved, but I mean a little Christ Christ. Christian, Christianity, of Christ. Can you be a little Christ? Can you be like Christ, a follower of Christ? Can you really be a Christian and work on a construction site? Can you be a Christian and work on a Do you know what happens on most construction sites? I've been on a few hundred. You'll hear things. And sometimes you'll hear blaspheming. And sometimes you'll hear bragging about things that shouldn't be being bragged about. Can you be a Christian in that? Can you really be a Christian and work on Wall Street? Uh, Do you know what goes on? It's it's very tempting. You you can cheat the system and jump ahead and take advantage and very greatly benefit yourself. Can you be a Christian? Can you be a Christian and go into politics? Can you be a Christian and go into the military? You know about the military, right? Lots of language, lots of drinking typically, lots of sexual promiscuity, uh, lots of independent. Feelings, lots of pride. Can you do that? You can. But you will have to be strong in your faith. And it's not just strong in your faith going in. You had better be depending upon the Lord to keep giving you strength while you're in that situation. But yes, it can be done. Third thing this morning. Number three. Not only Matthew, the tax collector, and Matthew, the host. But the main point of today's text is... Salvation is only for confessed sinners. Salvation is only for confess. Who needs salvation? It's only for confessed, confessed sinners. Do you profess? If you will not confess sin, then you can't have salvation. So I want to hit this from several angles this morning. Look at verse 12 again. But when he heard it, their question, Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. You need to go and learn what this means, Pharisees. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So try to hit this from a few angles. Here's where I want to begin, guys. The word gospel, do you know what it means? So if you're there watching at home somewhere, maybe you're by yourself. If you know what that word means, say it out loud. Like maybe I don't really know. Maybe right now, great. Some of you just said exactly what the word gospel means. Somebody here, what's the word gospel mean? Good news, right? It means the good news. Here's what we need to understand: to really share the gospel, and this is a reason. This ties into this text. To really, sh- to really share the gospel. We must precede the good news that Jesus provides eternal life. Jesus provides a way of heaven. Jesus gives us salvation. That's the good news. It's about Jesus and what he does. That has to be preceded by the bad news about sin. All of us have sinned. All of our sins have offended a holy God. He must punish our sins. We must hit this bad news. The only way the gospel is perceived as truly good news is when it is preceded by the bad news of sin. And that is what Jesus is hitting at this morning. So if I can encourage you, please. You say, I want want to tell somebody. I want to be like Matthew. I've got someone in my life that I'm going to target. I'm going to tell them about Jesus and, and how we can go to heaven through him. I'm going to tell you it will not work unless you precede that good news with the bad news about sin. You say, well, I don't want to talk about sin. Don't be afraid to talk to people about sin and include that you are a sinner. Confess, oh, I'm a sinner. You say, I wouldn't know where to start. Just go to Exodus chapter 20 and go through the Ten Commandments and just ask them, have you ever had a time in your life where you've loved anything or anyone more than God? A uh, chick, yes. Have you ever taken the Lord's name, God, Jesus Christ, ever in vain at all? Have you ever dishonored your parents? Have you ever had hatred towards someone? Have you ever lusted towards someone? Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever coveted ever in your life? Have you ever done even one of the talk about sin? You have to hit the bad news before it will really be perceived as good news, the gospel of Christ. Notice what Jesus says. Look with your eyes, verse 12. He says to them, those who are well have no need of a physician. So let's just be honest. And when I say men, I mean males, all right? Men, and I'm putting me in this group. And there'll be some wife. Uh, Some wife right now is going to either bump her husband or go, "Mm mm-hmm. Men are notorious for not going to the doctor. And there sits Dr. Bryant right now as I'm saying that. And my doctor uh, is probably watching this. I come sometimes. Uh, but men are notorious. We don't go to the doctor when we need to. And if you want to say, why is that? Well, here, let me give you some reasons why. Here's, here's how we think. Number one, I'm not sick enough yet. That's how we think. I don't need to go. You need to go. How come you have it? You need to go. I'm, I'm calling. No. Why not? I'm not sick enough yet. And the translation of that means it hasn't completely stopped me yet. It's just slowing me down. Second thought. Here's the second reason. It'll get better on its own. And maybe a head cold will, but sometimes we get these other things that happen to us, these conditions, and our mindset is it'll get better on its own. It hasn't yet, but we think it magically will. Or a third thing is I'm going to do something that I haven't done up till now because I don't know what to do, but I'm going to do something to fix it. What are you going to do? I don't know, but I'll do something. It hasn't stopped me yet. I'm not that sick yet, and so we don't go. Y'all know why that is, right? It's a manifestation of our ego, our pride and our ignorance that's just the way we are why, why don't you go because of what jesus says in verse 12 those who are well have no need of it he's not saying that some people are well he's saying some people see themselves as well or they're not quite sick enough that's why they don't go to the physician. well guys listen to me Far worse than ignorant, prideful males in the physical realm is the following. It is a person. Please get this. This is so much worse. It's a person who acknowledges sin. Yes, I have sin. Yes, I have sin. They acknowledge a level of sin. But it is not as bad as other people's sin. Here it is. I'm going to fix it. What you going to do? I'm going to fix it. Guys, even if we could stop sinning, it does not make up for the sin that we have already committed. That, that refusal, that pride, that arrogance, that ego, that yes, I'm not going to... The Pharisees would no doubt say, yes, we've sinned, but we're not like them. We're not as bad as they are. That is a deadly combination. Verse 12 again, I'm going to keep hitting this a couple more times when he... When he heard it, he said, those who are well, again, the idea they think they are well, that's what he's implying. They have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. What he's saying is those who know they are sick. Christians, we use this phrase where we're talking about the Lord Jesus or God as being the great physician. What do we mean? We usually mean that God When we pray to him for someone's physical need, he often will heal them after we've prayed and he'll answer our prayers. And God is the great physician. That is true. But really, in a greater way, the Lord Jesus, I'm not making this up. Jesus is referring to himself as the physician. He is the physician. But he's talking about something far greater than physical healing. He's talking about Spiritual healing. Why? Because the reason, listen, the reason people get sick and die physically is because we are born sick and dead spiritually. And the Lord Jesus is saying is, I'm like a physician in the physical world. I am the physician in the spiritual world. And there's a lesson. Again, some of you know a doctor. I have one in the house and others that are looking even right now. This is what Christ is teaching us. This is important. This is something that our nation is growing in our appreciation of of in a literal, physical way right now with this pandemic taking place. What Christ is trying to tell these Pharisees, you want to know why I'm in there with them? Here's why. Physicians must be willing to come in contact with sickness. Physicians, to be a true physician, you must be willing to put yourself in a position where you're going to encounter very unpleasant things if you're going to be able to help someone. You've got to say, but they're sick, I'm not going to get around. If you're a physician, you put yourself in a position where you're going to be around sickness and, again, around unpleasant things. Do you guys know that a family practitioner in one week, a normal week, sees things that the average one of us, if we saw it and smelled it, We'd throw up, we'd get sick, we'd retire. I mean, somebody comes in with a broken bone. I'm getting queasy. Some of these lacerations, and they just start sewing it up. There's something that is pus-ridden, and you got to kind of lance that thing and squeeze. And you're like, I'm, I'm never doing that. okay to be a physician. You have to put yourself in harm's way. And we're not even talking about bodily functions that nurses have to deal with. I mean, it's a lot. And the Lord is saying, yes, that's what I am. I go where the need is. What Christ is saying is, I am a good physician. Want to know why I'm eating with them? Jesus goes where the need is. He's trying to tell these Pharisees, I'm not in there eating with these tax collectors and sinners as an endorsement that I'm fine with their life. No, I'm giving myself as an opportunity. I'm giving them an opportunity to trust me as their spiritual healer of their sin sick." souls i am offering them spiritual salvation they know they're sick you want to know why i'm eating with them it's as though christ says i'm eating with them because they know they're spiritually sick and implying you guys don't think you're spiritually sick verse 12 one more time those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick let me tell you three things you don't do you don't take a brand-new baby, I mean a newborn baby, on the day that you leave the hospital and take them over to the dermatologist. You don't take newborn babies to the dermatologist. You say, why? They have skin like a baby. <laughs> you don't take them to the dermatologist. I'll tell you something else you don't do. You don't take a brand-new vehicle from the showroom. I mean with the lights on. I mean the wax job that doesn't change. I'm, I'm, talk, I'm not saying out on the lot of the dealership. I mean the one in the showroom. You don't buy that vehicle and open up those glass doors and drive it around and say, "Hey, by the way, can they work me in to the repair shop at the back of the dealership?" Excuse me? Oh, I'm going to take it around to the repair shop. Why? Why would you This, this is a brand new. There's nothing wrong with this vehicle. You don't do that. Probably the reason this is on my mind is because of what's been coming on Sunday nights the last 2 weeks, I'll be on again tonight on ESPN. I'll tell you something you don't do. You don't sign up Michael Jordan for JV Basketball Camp. You just don't do it. Michael, good news, we got you in. Michael Jordan might teach JV Basketball Camp, but he's not a camper at JV Basketball You say, why? He doesn't need it. They're not gonna teach him anything. Jesus' point here is that you Pharisees, in your minds, you think you're the newborn baby with perfect skin. You think you're the brand new shiny vehicle that has nothing wrong. You think you are spiritually the equivalent of Michael Jordan playing basketball against JV Kids. You think you're way up here and those guys are way down there. That's your problem. They know they're sick. You think you're not. I would eat with you. I would offer myself to you, but you don't need me. And so I'm giving myself to them. So we see Jesus the physician. Then in verse 13, we see Jesus the merciful. Jesus says, here's what you guys need to do. You need to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Learn what that means. I desire mercy. And that's an odd statement, isn't it? Think about that. What does Hosea mean? Hold on and read that. God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire mercy and not And not sacrifice. I want to jump ahead for a moment. Carson, D.A. Carson, writes the following. Okay? Please get it. It's a little complicated. Maybe not too much. Hopefully I can explain it. Carson, on that verse, offers the following. Again, this is Jesus quoting. So here's the quote. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Carson writes... Those, he's talking about the Pharisees, those who prided themselves in their knowledge of and conformity to Scripture needed to go and learn what it means. They prided themselves, we know what the Bible means, and we do what the Bible says. Jesus says you actually need to go back and learn what it means. And then Carson writes the following. He says the quotation, again taken from Hosea 6.6, he says it is cast in Semitic antithesis. Semitic meaning Hebrew, it's an Old Testament quote. And so Carson is offering that one of the things, one of the ways that the Hebrews would write things would be in a Semitic antithesis. And you're like, okay, what does that mean? Here's how Carson puts it, watch. To say, listen, to say, not A, but B. Let me say it again. It's a Hebrew way of expression. Not A, but B. He says, what that often means is B, B is of more basic importance than A. Watch it again. Not A, but B. What that often means is B is of more basic importance. Notice the word more. Please catch this. Jesus talking to these Pharisees and saying, you need to go read your Bible and find the spot where it says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Please catch, this does not mean that Jesus is unaware that, hold on, Lord, Hosea, wait a minute, buddy. The Old Testament calls for sacrifices. Are you saying the Jews should offer no more sacrifices? Are you saying it is wrong to offer sacrifices? Are you saying, Jesus, are you unaware of animal sacrifices? Are you unaware of sacrifices that were made from the fruit of the ground and from the vine and from their money? They made offerings and sacrifices. It cost them. Are you unaware that the Old Testament and, listen, the New Testament for Christians calls for a changed life, the offering of the sacrifice of praise, the offering of a sacrifice of a changed life? Are you saying that none of that matters? It's not that Jesus is totally discarding sacrifice and saying don't do it anymore what he's saying is if you emphasize your sacrifices you are totally missing the much greater more much more important thing which is mercy so can i make an application and then the interpretation here's the application you want to write it down jesus knows about sacrifices and offerings and change life He's not discarding that. But what he's saying is the mercy of God toward his followers should result in us being merciful to those who are in great sin. It must result in that. Listen to what Jesus is saying. Jesus is quoting Hosea. He's going to come back to it a couple more times, I believe, in the book of Matthew. This is an important thing with the Lord Jesus. This quote out of Hosea, again, Jesus is going to say it over and over. Listen to what he says. I desire mercy. I want mercy. I desire mercy. You Pharisees, you have no mercy. You look at these people and you're just inwardly just judging them. You're so caught up in how holy you are. You're so good. You judge them. Stop it. God's been merciful to you. God's blessed. So your life is not as simple as theirs. Stop judging them. Can I ask us, Graceview, when we look at people who are living in great sin, do we puff our chest up and do we start mentally in our mind forgetting where we were when God saved us and we start judging people? You know what the Lord's saying? Stop it. Cut it out. You should be merciful. Be more like God. And that's the application. Here's the interpretation. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So let me say it this way. I'm I'm, going to pan out. This is important. Big, big, big picture. Big picture. You say, why is everything happening that's happening? We're talking about the pandemic? No, no, no. Everything. The history of the world. I'm going to tell you why. If you read Romans and Ephesians and some other passages, here's what we learn. God is up to something. The whole creation is for this purpose, that the Son of God would become the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. He's the one and only true Son of God by nature, but there will be these many adopted. And here's the purpose. Here's what God's after. Those many brothers and sisters of Christ, spiritual brothers and sisters, will be conformed to His image. We will become like Him. So he will be the firstborn, he will be over, and we're gonna become like him, but here's what God's after. Listen, God wants his attributes to be praised. And so you say, why has everything happened the way it's happened? I can't explain it and it blows my mind and I can't make it all fit. It is a mystery, but one of the reasons God has even allowed and even designed without being the author of sin, God has allowed and designed sin so that his wrath against sin will be made known and it will be magnified and it will be praised. God is a holy, just God. He hates sin. If there is no sin, then everybody's wondering, hey, he's a holy God. Yeah, we hates sin. What is sin? So this had to happen. But a greater purpose of God is this. God has determined, this is your note. God has determined that the basis of man's salvation, I mean the basis, it will be his mercy and his grace. It will be that. God has determined my love, my mercy, and my grace. Hey, what, So what is mercy? Mercy is when people sin and God doesn't give them. He has this covenant love. He doesn't give them what they deserve. So what is grace? That's the other part of his covenant love where he gives us so much we don't deserve. What does that all spring from? God's great love. So he creates these objects of love who go astray, but he loves us and he shows us mercy and he gives us grace. And God has already determined, man's salvation, oh, it's gonna be about my mercy and my grace. It is not about your animal sacrifices, the money you give or how holy you live your life. It will never be based on those things. God's made up his mind. I've said it over and over. You and I must have faith. But God has determined that grace is the greater thing that allows faith. You can have faith all you want. You have to have it to go to heaven. But if you have faith and he doesn't offer grace, your faith does no good. Grace is greater than faith. And the last few thoughts, here's verse 13. Jesus says, hey, you need to go and learn what this means. You want to know the answer to your question, why I'm meeting with him? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Christ didn't come. All, all the righteous, send the word. We're going to start the kingdom. I'm going to give a few days. Send the word. All the righteous, come get. I need two lines. Let's get a line right here and a line right here. Everybody that's right. Listen, if he were to call the righteous... Anyone who even for a moment thinks, I wonder if I can go get in that line. If you even think for a second you could get in the line of the righteous, you're disqualified from salvation. You can't have it. You're disqualified. But what Christ does is he offers a call to sinners. He doesn't call the righteous. Why doesn't he call the right? There are none to call. The Pharisees, here's how they're thinking. I'm telling you, in their mind, there's a gap. There's a gap between them and the people in the house. And they think it's a wide gap. And I'm going to tell you guys, they're right. There is a wide gap between them and the tax collectors and sinners in the house. But the problem is, unfortunately for the Pharisees, that wide gap is not in their favor. It's against them. They think they're very near heaven, but actually they are really far. The people who are inside, who know they are sinners, they are very close to salvation. And the Pharisees are miles and miles from it because they don't think they need the Lord. They are waiting on the call of some Messiah that's going to call the righteous. They're going to keep waiting and waiting. It will never come for them. Jesus says, I came to call sinners. You see the word call there in verse number 13? It's not like how Paul uses the word call, this effectual call. What it means is literally an invitation. What Christ is saying is, if anyone will hear my invitation, and if they will hear it as something they need, If they will acknowledge their sin then I am offering them an invitation to come to me and I will save them from their sins. Now guys I realize today's message. You say Jeff there's no reason. I understand now why there were so few blanks on today. This is the simplest this is like a review. I'm a veteran Christian. I don't really need this message. I didn't learn anything new. Guys never grow tired of hearing what the Lord Jesus Christ teaches. Do you remember last week's message? Do you remember a paralyzed man is let down through the roof. Jesus on his own just tells him I forgive you of your sins. The scribes and Pharisees say, you don't have the authority to do that. They're thinking it. Jesus says, oh, I have. So here's last week's message. I, Jesus says, I have full authority to forgive people of all their sins. Anyone of all their sins. And then this week's message comes on the heels of it. And it teaches us this. But the crucial, again, last week, Jesus has full authority to forgive anyone's sins. This week's message, Jesus is teaching us that the crucial first step to receiving that forgiveness of sin is you must acknowledge that you need it. You have to. I close with this thought. Here's what I find amazing. I really do. Let this sink in. The holiest person, the, by far, the holiest person who's ever lived. Now, guys, let this sink in. I wish somebody would have told me this when I was in Bible college, about first year. The holiest person who's ever lived was encountered by sinners, and he put himself in a position to be encountered by well-known sinners. And yet he didn't repel them. He actually the holiest person, he attracted them, and yet he never compromised his holiness. I think there's a lesson there. I'm going to say it again. The holiest, only perfect person comes in contact with some of the worst in society. He doesn't repel. They don't flock away from him. He actually attracts them. And he never compromises his holiness. Here's what that tells me. If there is even one person or five or 50 who are watching this right now, and for whatever reason, where the Lord has brought you to watching this this morning, you in your heart are feeling like, I am such a vile sinner. And in your heart, you're feeling very, I mean, you don't just know your sin in your head. You're feeling the weight of your sin. And there's probably someone who fits this category. Some things have happened and you've done something recently, or you've not done something. I mean it's been building and building, or you did something really, really bad, and you're thinking, I could never go to heaven. If anybody, I am unworthy to go to heaven. Can I tell you something? The Lord does not want that poverty and that bankruptcy of righteousness to drive you away from him. He wants you're there. You feel, you're feeling like I, I can never go to heaven. He wouldn't say. Jeff, if you knew what I did, or if you knew how much I've done, he wants that bankruptcy of righteousness to not make you be repelled, but to drive you to him. Listen, you, like you, you, you're the reason he came. You're the reason he died on the cross. You are closer than about everybody else. Now you have to... Have faith. You say, well, I, I know I'm a sinner. The Bible's correct. I don't have to hear that. I'm feeling it. What you have to do is take that knowledge and that weight of that sin and that burden and that conviction. You have to hear the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, I gave these last week. John chapter 3, verse 16. You have to believe. Let it drive you to Him. The Lord's saying, I'm, that, you're the one I'm inviting. Come. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And he that comes to me, the idea of asking for salvation, I will not cast out. I'll not reject you. He's inviting. He's literally saying, who am I here for? I'm for those who know they are sinners. He's going to be called the friend of sinners. That's our God. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever you... But if you knew what I've done, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Romans chapter 10 verse 13, I say it over and over. Not a month goes by, but that I don't say Romans 10, 13. Everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But you have to hear his call, hear his invitation, respond to it with an awareness of your sin, and then also have a belief, a trust in his promises. You've heard his promise this morning. If you will believe, come just as you are. Right there where you're at at home, would you bow your heads just for a moment? I'm going to invite you... Bow your heads, close your eyes. As the Son of God, Jesus has full authority to forgive all your sin. But you must acknowledge that sin. And if you're not a Christian yet, I want to encourage you, even right now, I may be talking to one or again, five people, 50, who knows, Have a conversation with God. He's everywhere. He knows your thoughts. Just go ahead and put me in the background. But let me just kind of prompt you. Maybe the Lord even used my words. It's Him that you need to listen to. But just bring Him into your sphere of awareness and talk to the Lord and say, Lord, you know that I am aware of my sin. But today, I am taking Jesus up on His offer. He's calling sinners for forgiveness. And just ask the Lord in your own words... Lord, I'm broken, I'm wounded, I'm empty, I'm a sinner. But I believe your death on the cross was for me. It was enough. Would you please save me? Ask him, just ask him to save you from your sins. Trust him. I promise he will save you if you will trust him. That's all you can do, that's all you must do. You don't have to move your body, you don't have to move your vocal cords, just... In your heart, talk to the Lord. God, I believe in you. I believe in what your son did on the cross was for me. Lord, I receive your salvation. I ask you to save me from my sins. And Then this morning, just before we dismiss and go off the air, Christians, can I just, just a couple of things. Can I encourage us? Never forget where you were when God found you. Are you more in alignment? I'm not asking your lifestyle, but I'm talking about the way you think. Are you more in alignment with the people that were in the house or with the Pharisees who were outside? Are you judgmental? Are you having a hard time being merciful to a group of people or to a person? You say, I'm just really struggling. But if you knew what they've done or what they've not done, but these these people, and they're just so far from... okay. Do you remember where you were? Do you still feel your history and what you are capable of apart from the Lord Jesus? Let that drive you to be merciful yourself. And can I challenge us? Let's be like Matthew. Matthew followed the Lord and lived like the Lord. Matthew engaged in ministry. Matthew studied the life of the Lord Jesus. He learned what he taught. He implemented into his life and he taught other people. Are you doing that? Let's be like Matthew who was a tax collector turned apostle by the power of Christ. And my very last thought is this. Is there anyone that right now the Lord is laying on your heart where Matthew went and spoke and and arranged and made a meal even, went far out of his way to bring in the people under his influence So they could be introduced to Christ. Is the Lord laying a specific person on your heart that without getting involved in their sin and partaking of that, you spiritually strong, you become the influencer. And you may need to set something up. You may need, like, I'm going to use a resource that I have in my life. And I'm going to reach out to that person. And my goal is to share Christ. And they will hear my faith. So I'm going to put that out to us as Christians this afternoon. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that you loved us, that you gave your best. Thank you that Christ was willing to have to do with us as a good physician coming where the need is. Lord, thank you for meeting me there in Mount Olive Baptist Church, Town Mountain Road in Asheville, North Carolina, in 1979. Lord, you met me and you revealed my sin. And you gave me faith in your promises. And so, Lord, I pray if anyone did that today, Lord, that they would even follow up and now share their faith. Lord, let us as Christians be sharing our faith. Let us follow the example of Matthew as he followed you. Lord, I pray that we would find our identity in you. Lord, we are thankful for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that, again, he came not to call the righteous, but to call us as sinners. Lord, we needed that. And again, thank you for him as our Savior. We commit this time to you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.